My mother celebrated her 100th birthday on the 29th of March last. She actually had three days of celebration and attended five different parties. But one of the highlights of the whole event was opening the multitude of birthday cards she received from all sorts of people who had known her through the years. Nowadays, you don't get a telegram from the Queen anymore. You get a very nice card. And when we opened the card from the Queen, my mother reacted in amazement. Do you know what she said? How does she know me? (laughs) How does she know me? We tried to explain to her that it's not that the Queen knows you personally, but she sends a card to everybody who reaches a hundred. The 139th Psalm contains the reaction of a man who'd made an even more astounding discovery that God knew him personally. Indeed, that God not only knew him, but cared for him and was concerned even about the smallest details of his life, and who was aware of his inmost thoughts even before they'd formed in his mind. He was so overwhelmed by the sense of God's personal knowledge of him that there seemed to be only two people in the universe, himself and God. And he exclaims to God, You've searched me, Lord. You know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word's on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. The psalmist is utterly astounded. And that knowledge of us that the psalmist talks about is the knowledge that should give each one of us hope as Christians. Whatever our circumstances are at the present time, here's a picture of God who knows all about us. He knows when we sit down and when we get up, when we go out into the world, when we come back home. He knows our thoughts. He understands our hidden motives, our unseen agendas that are behind what we think. He knows the path we take each day, each pause, each detour. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. He knows everything. He knows if we're feeling rotten at present. He knows if we're secretly depressed. He knows if we're overcome with anxiety. He knows if hurt or hatred fills our heart. He knows it all. And yet he cares for us and seeks to keep us from harm. Verse 5. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hands upon me. Here's a picture of the God whose everlasting arms surround us and who keeps us in his care. It's the same message we received in the 121st Psalm, which we looked at a month ago. Remember, God said, the psalmist said, He will not let your foot slip. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He'll watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your going and coming, both now and forevermore. The same picture of constant care and love. Indeed, it's the same message that Jesus came with. You remember Luke 12, verse 6? Jesus telling them, telling those followers who are anxious, 
Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Psalm 139 gives us a picture of a God who knows all about us. He knows us warts and all, and yet he reaches out in love to help us. The psalmist's first response then is wonder or amazement. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain, he says in verse 6. Just like my mother's amazement that the queen seemed to know her. So he was overwhelmed by the fact that God knew everything about him. And so he asks in verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go from your spirit? The answer, of course, is nowhere. Where can I flee from your presence? Nowhere. And he goes on to say, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the depths, to Hades, the place of the dead, you're there. Should I go to the farthest corner of the globe, east or west, you would be there. Wherever it is, God's promise is the same. There your hand will guide me, and your right hand hold me face. Hold me fast. That's God's promise. That's his purpose for each of us. It's true for us. If things are heavenly for us just now, if we're enjoying good health, if we're happy in our job, if we've plenty of cash, if if everything's good in our families, if all is well, God is there, the giver of every good and perfect gift. And if we're down in the dumps, in the depths of despair, if life indeed even is hellish for us, He's there too. And even if everything seems black and dark, the darkness does not cut us off from God's care. The psalmist says of God, The darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Your right hand will hold me fast. And you know, there's something else that strikes me as I read this section of the psalm. When we think of ourselves and God, we so often think of what we can do to come closer to God or to find God. We come to church, we read the Bible, we pray, we read religious books, we go to conferences, retreats, study groups, seeking God. Some people we know go to extremes, fasting, self-denial, physical hardship, days, even weeks of prayer. And yet for most of us, that search never really satisfied. We never seem to get to where we really want to be in relation with God. What these verses say is this. It's not a question of us pursuing God. God is pursuing us wherever we are. Whatever we do, wherever we go, he is there. He is there. We may not see him because of our darkness, but he is there at hand to guide, and his right hand will hold us fast. In the New Testament, we have that beautiful 
picture in Luke 15 of God as a shepherd going out looking for the lost sheep and keeping looking until he finds the sheep. These verses give us a picture not of us having to cling on to God, but of God holding on to us whatever our circumstances. Your right hand will hold me fast. One of the most outstanding preachers in Scotland in the 19th century was the hymn writer George Matheson. Matheson was born in 1842, one of eight children. He was born with what was called in those days weak eyes. But despite this handicap, he was a brilliant scholar and a warm and friendly person. He got engaged to a very nice girl. However, his eyesight continued to deteriorate, and he was told that he would soon become entirely blind. This was too much for his fiancée, and she broke off their engagement, saying to him, I could not go through life with a blind man. We can only imagine what this rejection did to George Matheson, the pain it caused him. His sight did deteriorate. He had to give up academic life because of his blindness. And he became a parish minister in the Church of Scotland. He only was able to cope with this because his eldest sister devoted herself to not only caring for him, but practically running the parish. Eventually, that sister fell in love and arrangements were made for her marriage. The night before she was to be wed, all the family were away for the wedding, and Matheson was left alone in his manse. He was overcome with despair. How was he going to keep going? How was he, a blind man, going to cope on his own? And I have no doubt some of that despair was because of memories of his own rejection, the breakup of his relationship many years before. And that night alone, he was in deep despair. And as he struggled with his feelings, God, in some way, dramatically touched his life. His thoughts were transformed. He remembered that though his fiancée had dumped him and his sister had left him, there was one hand that still held him fast. And so he wrote the famous hymn that all of you will know. O love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to you. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. Your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Matheson went on to have an outstanding ministry despite his disability. And through his hymns he still stirs the hearts of Christians today. Whatever darkness may be pushing us 
towards despair. Even in that situation, we can say to God, O love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. Your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. How can it be that God should know us so intimately? How can God have such a concern for each of us? The answer is found in the next section of the psalm, verses 13 to 16, giving us a picture that God has made us. From before we were born, he cared for us. Remember the words, you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. God is not just the creator of the world. The clouds, the trees, the things I was talking to the children about. He's the creator of each one of us, and we are fearfully and wonderfully made, as the psalmist says here. I don't know if any of you uh, saw the television program, The Midwives, during the week. We were reminded there, not only of the wonder of birth, but through the advances of science, something of the complexity and awesomeness of the development of the unborn child in the womb. Rather poetically, the psalmist puts it, When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. From before our birth till after our death, God cares for us and knows us well. Your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. You know, it would be nice if the psalm ended there, but it doesn't. We come to some verses that are difficult to understand, some verses that often are omitted when people are reading this psalm, some verses that have been used at times in history to justify terrible behavior. Verse 19, where we are now, marks an abrupt translation from thoughts about the greatness of God the thoughts about the vileness of the psalmist's enemy. If only God would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. Some of this we can understand when we think of those who used chemical weapons to cause the horrible deaths of hundreds of people in Damascus last week. Is it not acceptable to pray that God would slay them so that no more such acts of brutality could be done? Was it not valid to pray that Adolf Hitler would be struck down? Is it not because of love for the innocent and a longing for justice that we pray that the wicked may be slain at times? Indeed, isn't it one of the problems of our society today that we're so passive that no matter what evil we see perpetrated, no matter how we see God mocked, we don't get angry about it and try to do something to bring about change. There's not much hatred of evil. 
We can see the need for some of that. We see the need to stand up for righteousness. But what has caused Christians difficulty with these verses is the emphasis on continued hatred, in particular the last phrase in this section, I have nothing but hatred for them, or as the authorized version puts it, I hate them with perfect hatred. The language reminds many people more of the Taliban than the teaching of Christ. It leads us to thoughts of punishment and revenge and destruction rather than repentance, reconciliation, restoration of relationships. There's a place for righteous anger, but we must always ensure that it's in line with the teaching of Jesus, who told his followers to love their enemies, to do good to those who hate them, to overcome evil by good. The challenge is to hate the sin, but love the sinner. And having judged God's enemies, the psalmist in the last couple of verses is quite willing to place himself under the same judgment, to have the spotlight turned on him. And so the psalm ends, Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. All of us, need to ask, is there any hatred in my heart? Are my feelings in line with the teaching of Christ? Rather than dwelling on the sinfulness of others, all of us need to pray that prayer, search me, O God, know my heart, see if there is any offensive way in me. The dramatic fall of our local politician, Iris Robinson, a few years ago was so traumatic, not just because of her actual behavior, but because of her previous strong moral outrage at the behavior of others. It's so easy to see the sins of others and be unaware of our own. And all of us, all of us can fall into the same trap. All of us can have in our lives things that we are unaware of that need changing. God knows us intimately. He knows what's there, and he still loves us. And he wants, us, and he wants to help us to change those things that ought not to be there. And that's why the psalmist pleads in the last verse for God's help, Lead me, Lord in the way everlasting. When we pray, lead me in the way everlasting and seek to walk in the path of Christ, the God to whom the psalmist spoke, his hand will guide us to his right hand, hold us fast. Let me finish with my mother's question. How does he know me? God knows me. Because he created me. He formed me in my mother's womb. He knows my thoughts. He's guided and guarded me through the years. He knows me and he loves me and he calls me by my name. And I can go from this place today with confidence, knowing that as I commit myself to his care, 
Nothing can separate me from his love, which is in Jesus Christ my Savior. In the coming week, I'll be able to face every circumstance and cope with every difficulty because his hand will guide me and his right hand hold me fast. Amen.